You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. This episode is brought to you by Palo Alto Networks, the leader in cybersecurity. As AI-driven attacks increase, organizations can't afford to have network security that's stuck in the past. Discover how Palo Alto Networks can help you predict what's coming and proactively secure against it with a zero-trust, AI-powered network security platform built to secure whatever, whenever, wherever. To learn more, visit paloaltonetworks.com slash network security platform. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Pete Early. Pete Early is the author of Comrade J, one of the most remarkable books that's come out this year about a Russian intelligence officer stationed in Manhattan and the activities that he engaged in, the operations he ran, the agents he had, and quite remarkably, he was an agent for the CIA and the FBI during the last years of his service. And the book gives us incredible insight into both the KGB as an organization and also of the recruiting activities of the Russian involved, whose name is Sergei Trechikov. Uh, Pete Early is the author of a book on the Walker family, the Walker spy ring. He interviewed every member of the Walker spy ring. And also he did one of the key books on the case of Rick Ames, the CIA turncoat. And it was Pete Early who did the book called Confessions of a Spy. Uh, and these were interviews that uh, Pete obtained uh, uh, in the jailhouse before Rick uh, was actually taken under uh, the arm of federal authorities and no longer was giving interviews. Both those books are considered uh, valuable insights in the intelligence literature field. Pete, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Peter. And I'd like to start off by asking you about Sergei Trechikov. And I'd like to ask you, given your experience in other cases, what made Sergei Trechikov defect to the United States in place and in effect become a covert action agent, if you will, for not a covert action agent, but a covert agent for the U.S. for the U.S. for a period of some years. Well, Sergei was the highest ranking um, SVR officer, which replaced the KGB, uh, ever to defect. Uh, he was in charge of all Russian spy operations in New York. He had over 60 case officers reporting to him. He had something like 150 uh, tr uh, contacts, including eight that they considered trusted contacts, which would be, in their view, uh, people as serious as a Walker or an Ames, which is rather frightening. Um, he became disillusioned uh, with the Russian system uh, after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And this is interesting because he was trained to be a KGB officer. He has what he calls the KGB brain. Uh, and so it's fascinating to watch him and see this disillusionment. And also, um, he became disgusted with the Yeltsin and Putin administrations. He felt like they were corrupt. He felt like they were simply a gang of thieves. 
and most of all, though, I think he decided to begin helping people in the United States uh, because of his daughter. He had a young daughter. He did not want to take her back to Russia. He did not want her uh, marrying someone in that system and being stuck there forever. So in cases like Walker, cases like Ames, as my friend uh, General Boris Solomotin said, uh, he was one of the highest-ranking KGB generals during the Cold War. With Americans, there's no romance. It's always the money. And this was an interesting case with Sergei because uh, he had lots of money. He, had a, he lived very li uh, a lavish lifestyle in Moscow. He was going to be promoted to general. He had an apartment worth more than a million dollars. But it was not money motivating him as much as these other reasons to, one, flip sides and actually help us, and then, two, defect. One of the things you, you note about Sergei Trechikov is he was a colonel. He was clearly en route to becoming a general. He was highly successful, and he had operated quite successfully uh, in Ottawa before he came to the United States. He operated successfully here. And one of the things he talked to you about was targeting various nationalities and trying to recruit them in this day and age. I think, Peter, one of the most shocking things to me was how easy it was for Sergei to recruit our, our friends, people in NATO who were supposed to have our best interest at heart. Uh, during the Soviet days, uh, one of the uh, methods they used to recruit people was trying to convince you to spy uh, against the United States out of a love of communism. Well, it didn't work too well. Uh, but now the tactic has been, as Sergei explained it, to go to someone in Turkey, go to someone in Greece, go to someone in Canada and say, you know, look, uh, I don't want you to betray your country. I don't want to harm your country, but we're interested in the United States. It's the only superpower. It's an imperialistic country. Look what it's doing across the world. It's not good to have one superpower. And shockingly, for the price of a good lunch in Manhattan, many of these people were willing to betray U.S. secrets that had been in their custody. And that, that to me, was pretty frightening. Did uh, Sergei touch on uh, his reasons not only for defecting, but for, in, in effect, changing countries? For, to become, he has become an American citizen. He has become an American citizen, and he feels very patriotic about this country. Uh, I think in, if you talk to him, I'll speak for him, having heard him say this, he doesn't feel like he betrayed Russia. He feels like he was betrayed by the Russian leadership. Now, of course, anyone who um, becomes a traitor or a hero, depending on which side you're on, wants to justify their actions. Uh, but with him, I saw a real difference between him and a Walker and an Ames, in that um, he came to believe uh, that the U.S. system was better, democracy was better. And I would stop him and say, look, Sergey, this country, you're making this country more than it is. And he'd, he'd get angry and he'd say, no, uh, you're making it, uh, you're making the mistake. I put my life on the line for this country and you don't know what it's like to live under a different kind of regime. And I think he absolutely believes that. I think he uh, has uh, become someone who he sees himself as a, a, a patriot. Um, I think the main reason, though, was because of his daughter. And I think he also was smart enough to realize that if he came uh, to this country, the talents he had uh, were, um, were going to afford him a good lifestyle if he worked for us, if he helped our country. And I think that was part of the motivation, too. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it makes sense. He was in a position where he could help the United States, and he knew the United States would welcome him. You mentioned that he, uh, of course, that the KGB, which is the organization he joined, is now called the SVR. Right. And you also touched at one point, 
in the book on his visits back to Moscow right. and what he saw as a very, very changed organization. Can you talk about that? Yeah, Peter, this was a guy who grew up thinking um, that the KGB generals were like gods. Uh, this is what he always wanted to do in his entire life. This is a, a young man who was terrified uh, when you walked into the same room as a KGB general because they were held with such reverence. Um, and then he's in Ottawa, and the Soviet Union collapses, and he goes back to the center, the main headquarters, and he finds it in disrepair. What used to be as, uh, as fine as a five-star hotel now is dirty. He's told that he cannot uh, call anybody after 11 because everyone will be drunk. Uh, almost all of his colleagues whom he respected had fled the service and gone into private business. And I think Yuri Kobolatsi, the spokesman for what used to be the OKGB, uh, said it publicly that something like 70 to 80 percent of all veteran KGB officers left the service uh, during the, the 90s. And he went into a bathroom at, at the center, and there's a sign hanging there literally telling him, do not pee on the toilet seats. And this was this great agency. He thought that the KGB was the finest intelligence service in the world, and it was reduced to that. And I think that, plus, when he came back to New York, um, he was instrumental in bringing a uh, high-ranking SVR officer into the UN, introducing him in undercover. And uh, this guy spent all his time stealing money. And through the Oil for Food program uh, in uh, um, Iraq, he stole more than $500 million for the Yeltsin and the Putin presidencies. And it, um, I think, although some people would say, well, how moralistic is that? I think that um, Sergei felt very strongly that he wasn't a thief. He was doing a profession, and it was unprofessional just to steal money to line your own pockets. And I think that was also part of his decision. He felt like he was representing a gang of thieves and thugs. He, his tour before he came to this country was in Ottawa, uh, in Canada. And in the book, he actually names some of the agents there. That is, he gives a very uh, a thinly veiled identification of them with a code name. And yet the press in Canada has... Uh, I think, uh, made quick work of identifying who they really are. Have there been any repercussions from that? Uh, not at this point that I know of, no. Other than in the press, though. I gather there's been a lot of press coverage I think the book's this. pretty much been attacked up there uh, because, uh, now he names one person who he says is a member, was a member of parliament. Um, and the, the problem, of course, is, as you know, Peter, um, how do you confirm a private conversation between someone, especially if that one person is trying to recruit the other one. And I think Sergei is very honest in this book in the sense that he not only talks about uh, people that he claims to have recruited, he talks about people who worked with him who made things up and how difficult it was. And that's one of the reasons why, for instance, uh, the KGB required uh, some of its operatives to use tape recorders and tape record conversations because they were very aware that younger officers might, you know, meet somebody like Pete Early on the street and then come back and whatever the, was the local headline, they would say, oh, he told me this, or they would massage information. And I think that uh, Sergei was not only aware of that, but he... I, I think he bent over backwards with me in this book to be extremely careful about what he said. Uh, he would uh, correct me on the slightest mistakes because it's very important for him to be taken seriously. And he knew that the SVR and his old uh, colleagues in Russia would be attacking and leaping upon the slightest error. And um, 
the, he didn't want them blowing that up, saying the whole book was, of course, you know, wrong. And so I think, if anything, as strange as it might sound, because this is an unusual book and that he names names, he says that this ambassador from the U.N. was one of our people. Uh, these two ambassadors are getting paid off by us. This person stole $500 million, and he puts their names in there and says, you know, I worked with them, I did this. And that makes it, makes it very unusual. But I actually think what is in the book probably is the tip of the iceberg. I think what he told the CIA, what he's told the FBI, is much more deeper. Well, it's interesting you touch on, on, you know, this person was ours and that person was ours. And certainly one of the more sensational items in the book, and, and uh, actually the mainstream press has been slow to pick it up, are his allegations about former, our former Deputy Secretary, Secretary of State Strobe Talbot, and uh, whom he identifies as, I think that the title is un, uh, Unofficial unofficial valuable source it's most trusted contact and most that's trusted very, contact yeah, yeah yes. it's very interesting uh, what sergey has to say about this first of all he was in uh, moscow at the time being prepared for his tour here in uh, new york and he says i never handled uh, i had no dealings with talbot okay but he was told uh, and he knows for a fact that Talbot was identified by the term most trusted contact. And that is a specific term in the SVR. It's not something that you just lop on to anyone. And what he says about this is that he has no doubt in his mind that Talbot was an absolute U.S. patriot, that he wasn't an Aldrich James, he certainly wasn't a walker, he wasn't doing anything knowingly wrong. But what he talks about is how the SVR prepared questions, specific questions that it then fed to the equivalent uh, in the uh, uh, Russian system, uh, the equivalent diplomat who was meeting with Talbot. And that then they tried to engineer scenarios where they would meet one-on-one. -on -one. And Talbot discusses this in his own books, his personal relationship with his fellow and how they went to the movies and how they uh, loved Star Wars and, uh, you know, all this kind of stuff. And he says that the SVR felt that Talbot was naive in the sense that he was like many Westerners who were rushing in to save Russia, this poor, uh, foolish people who didn't know what to do, didn't know how to build their economy, didn't know what to do, and that the um, SVR was very good, very wise at playing dumb, and that then they were able to use this to their advantage and obtain information uh, and, of course, I, I uh, contacted Talbot when these accusations came out, and he said that that was wrong. It was naive. He never did anything. He never said anything. But in Sergei's mind, it's an example of how intelligence is not always somebody just passing a secret document in a parking garage or stealing something. It's befriending people in power, gaining their trust, uh, maybe having them look into your eyes and see your soul, and then not realize that you're a sleeping tiger and slipping, trying to get information from them that you may be able to put together with other information and, and use. That's interesting, and the uh, because I think anyone reading it, reading the account in the book, would think, well, the relationship that Strobe had, Talbot had with Medvedev, the, 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 his equivalent in right. the uh, Russian foreign ministry, sounds like a relationship any two senior diplomats might have, the idea of getting to know each other and each of them trying to advise the other perhaps on the uh, giving an inside account of why our government is upset about what you've done. And, and, and I guess the question that comes to my mind is the fact that Medvedev, the, the deputy, the Russian prime minister, 
was a co-optee of the SVR. That is, he was their guy, and therefore the information came to the Russian government through that channel, and they gave him this label. Suppose it had just come through regular Ministry of Foreign Affairs channels. Would it have been treated I, differently? I, I think so, and I think you hit the key point there that Medvedev, Medvedev was their guy. He was known to be a longtime co-optee. Uh, the question, of course, is, was Talbot playing the same game? Was he? But it's hard for me to believe that he was acting as a, a CIA um, co-optee. I think if the CIA wanted to debrief him, I think obviously they would have done that. But this was more than that. This was the SVR preparing specific questions for this guy to work into his conversations and then report back to him. And to do it in the most uh, disengaging, friendliest, best way possible. And I think that what Sergey will say is, look, um, I don't think Stroh Talbot uh, was uh, in, in any way trying to do anything to harm the United States government, but it is just foolish for people of his rank uh, to meet one-on-one -on -one with a person uh, from another country on that rank. It's too much can be. And one of the things that Sergey points out in this book, which is interesting to me, is how uh, some of his officers would, again, meet with people and then massage the information to make it look better than it is. So we don't know, one, if Talbot was funneling information back to the CIA, and we don't know if the uh, Russian uh, equivalent was massaging information and giving to his bosses. So in, in essence, Talbot put himself in a, in a dangerous position because let's say in 10 years from now, somebody turns up a document over there and you don't know what his counterpart claimed he said, and yet it would be taken seriously because, you know, it was presented that way. So it's... It's just foolish for those kind of people to meet in private like they did. Interesting. The, uh, you, you describe very uh, poignantly, I think, the evolution of Trechikov's thinking about defecting. And you ascribe a great deal to uh, Trechikov's relationship with his wife and her influence, as well as the uh, influence or impact of his having a daughter. But they also had a mother in Moscow. I wonder his mother was still alive in Moscow. I wonder if you could just comment sure. on how that evolved. Well, you have to understand that this is a fellow who, when uh, Ames uh, did what he called the big dump, where he exposed all of our assets over there, uh, Tretyakov was in a position, uh, being the head of what was the equivalent of the Young Communist League at the time, that he attended many of these trials. He was at the dinners where uh, the Khrushchev, the head of the KGB, stood up and said, the traitor Matinov has just been shot. And they all stood up and applauded. He knew very well. He saw these people when he describes one, you know, after three or four days of, of uh, being tried and he wondered if he'd been drugged and the pale white and the haggard look and the despondency. He knew what would happen if he got caught and yet he volunteered to help the United States. He instigated the action. He was not recruited. He was not seduced. He was not paid. So he knew the penalty and he knew what would happen to his family. And I think, I theorize in the book that he waited and until his mother had died, and he knew he had no more living relatives in Moscow. And his wife was a huge part of that. In fact, uh, there's some who would suggest that she may be one of the ones who first brought up the idea of not going back. Uh, she talked about that to me. It was a family decision, and it was her concern, again, about the daughter and about the lifestyle and what they were seeing. You have to remember in the 1990s, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia was in turmoil. 
People did not have, uh, some people did not have enough to eat. It was desperate times. Criminal elements were taking over. And he looked at that and, and he saw everything he'd worked for. Um, just, you know, why go back? Why would I want to be part of that, uh, uh, of that regime? What did he leave behind? What did they leave behind as a family? Well, as a family, he'll say that he didn't leave anything behind that was important, but he left over a million-dollar apartment. He left two dachas that were very highly left over. It's interesting. He prides himself on being a reader. He had over 14,000 volumes in his private library. I mean, he, he, this was not a case of, I don't have anything. I'm going to switch sides and get rich. And this was a guy who was going to be a general, and even today, uh, you know, SVR generals rule the roost. They get special treatment, they, just as they did in the old days. So he had a comfortable life. So, uh, yes, he has a comfortable life here. I was told by the FBI that he has received the largest resettlement package ever uh, given to a, a defector. Well, that says something, because the United States just doesn't throw money out. It's paid him for goods and services. It's figured out what his worth was when he worked for us and what his worth is now as he still continues to advise the CIA and the FBI. Um, so it wasn't all about money. And that perhaps is what intrigued me in contrast to Walker Names, which was all about money and ego. And this was a guy who came to... Uh, uh, believe in the American system. So it's a, it's a wonderful patriotic story in that way. And what is he doing now? Well, he's set up for life. Uh, the taxpayers have taken care of that, and he advises the CIA and FBI. He won't discuss that. He can't discuss it, according to his resettlement contract. But I know that he's been to England. I know he's been to Israel. I know he's been to several foreign countries where he lectures them about what is happening in their country. Yet one of the things you got to understand about Sergei is uh, it's been he defected in 2000, and, gee, that seems like a long time. But in spy terms, it is not. Many of the people he fingers are still right there in the U.N. Many of the techniques. You can't change a communication system in seven or eight years. You can't change. I mean, these, the systems he describes, and he has illustrations in the book, about how the Russian intelligence eavesdrops on conversations and their system of, of, of uh, intercepting messages from the air. These are things that took years and years and years to develop. You don't throw them out. It's just like in the Walker case. One of the things that Walker gave up was the SOSIS system, which are uh, microphones on the seabeds outside the Atlantic and the West Coast. And I was told by Sola Martin that the Russians had gone and started destroying these microphones, causing millions and millions and millions of damage. And you just don't recover from that overnight, you know. And that's what... But not only that, you get not only the intelligence that this guy provided when he was stealing secrets, over 5,000 for the U.S., you have a KGB brain, and you know how to react. It's just like uh, one of the members of your board, Ole Kalugan. You know, you have a general there. And I don't know what he's ever done talking to intelligence, but he's a wonderful resource for you because you can go and say, this is what Putin says. This is what Yachenko, was he a real defector or not? And it's a valuable resource. And for the CIA and FBI, Sergei is now that resource. He's someone they can go and say, okay, this is happening in the Putin administration. Do you know this guy? Yes, I do. Do you know what's his history? And he's done profiles of, of the high-ranking uh, Russian officials. Pete, how long did it take you to write this book? This one took about 16 months. Uh, it took a lot of interviews with him and then, uh, you know, getting it. It was frustrating because it's hard to confirm many of his accusations, but that's understandable. And I, I know you went to some lengths to, to write the people who right. were, in fact, whose right. names had come up and right. allegations I, had been uh, levied. I, 
I contacted Talbot and others and let them say, but, you know, it's one of those situations where somebody makes an accusation and somebody makes a denial, and it's frustrating because then you can't do much else. Yeah. Pete, I wonder if you can sort of sit back and, and uh, take off that author's hat you wore for six months. What do you think of Tretyakov as a person? Um, I like him. He's very, very smart. He's very enthusiastic. Um, and he's, you know, he's like a fresh patriot. You know, he's, it's kind of a reminder to some of us who, especially journalists, who kind of have a jaundiced view sometimes of what goes on, especially after 36 years in Washington. Um, you know, it's kind of fresh to see somebody who, who, because of what he went through, because of what he saw in Russia, because of what he saw at the KGB, who really has a genuine appreciation for freedom and the ability that you and I can sit here and have this conversation. You know, we, we couldn't do this in Moscow. Yeah. I think, you know, what's so valuable in your book is both the picture he gives of the KGB and also of working in the West against Westerners, against Americans, against Canadians. Uh, it, and I think, uh, and I've asked you this before, do you think uh, that Peter Early will have a chance someday to do volume two? And that is the insight into precisely uh, his defection to the FBI, CIA, and his work in, in New York. I would love to do that because I think there's a great story there. Unfortunately, uh, he doesn't want to feed his enemies, as he says. And as long as the Russians don't know specifically when he started spying, uh, what kind of documents he got. they and, You know, in every case, Walker, Ames, all these, you go back and you consider everything they ever touched to be you know, in danger. Well, he worked for him so long, it would be very helpful if they knew when. But I'd like to know how they got him out. And uh, I think the thing, the overall message of this book is really rather simple, which is this. Uh, the story he tells I really like is he says, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, our main adversary was the United States, NATO, and China. When the Soviet Union ended, our targets became the United States, NATO, and China. Nothing's changed. And yet, because of terrorism, because Bush looked into Putin's eyes and saw the soul, we have been relaxed into thinking this stuff doesn't go on. And it's going on now, and it will always go on. Pete, it's been terrific talking to you today. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. Uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you. <laughs>